Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business podcast from the Business in Vancouver newspaper and from our website, BIV.com. I'm Haley Wooden. Today on the show, our Asia 360 segment, Opportunities for Canada in India. We'll take a look with Jeff Reeves. First, two events I'd like to draw your attention to. First, coming up on April 25th, BIV's Business Excellence Series is back, and it's back with a panel discussion on the next big things in banking and in finance. The discussion will explore the future of banking and finance, policy challenges, the impacts on incumbents in the space, as well as opportunities for upstarts. For tickets and information, you can visit BIV.com slash BES-Banking-Finance. And the second wave of cannabis legalization, it's coming here in Canada. On May 22nd, our Cannabis 2.0 event will examine and size up the opportunities in this expanded market. So we're looking to discuss edibles, infused beverages, topicals, and vapes. For more information, you can visit BIV.com slash events. Every other week, we take a deeper look at the economics, policies, issues, and politics of the world's fastest-growing region. This is our Asia 360 segment, and today we're looking at opportunities in India with Jeff Reeves, Vice President of Research at the Asia-Pacific Foundation of Canada. As always, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. So you're just back from a trip to India. You had the chance to speak with leaders in the corporate sector. What are some of your key takeaways from the trip? Well, India is an exciting country right now. There's a lot going on. The economy is growing very quickly. Um, People are very enthusiastic about the opportunities they see. And you hear that across both the government side and the private sector side. Uh, There's a lot of focus on bringing in some uh, major, for example, infrastructure development programs across the country, something that um, Canadian firms have been involved in in the past, uh, specifically looking about For example, providing roads to rural areas, things like clean water to rural households. So real focus on on kind of gathering the the economic success that they've had and translating it into more kind of sociable, tangible outcomes. India has, of course, a very large population. It's also a fairly large country size-wise. What are some of the things that Canadians and Canadian companies need to consider before even approaching a market of that size? That's a great question. So we've often been, we we are often asked at the foundation to help firms think through kind of an India strategy. And one of the things that I realized straight away landing in Mumbai is that it's not appropriate to have an India strategy. You need to have regional strategies. You need to have state-centric strategies. You need to have city strategies. Think, for example, Mumbai is a city of about 23 million people. So, I mean, that's, you know, a significant population size in and of itself. Mm -hmm. So if a a Canadian small or medium-sized firm or even a large Canadian firm had an opportunity in Mumbai, the uh, issues around scaling are significant just at the city level. So thinking about the size of India, it's necessary to understand all of these local conditions, um, all of the opportunities that come, but also the challenges from engaging in such a a large country with such diverse uh, local area-specific issues. Is there a a stark divide between urban India and rural India? Oh, absolutely. Uh, One of the things that was, again, in Mumbai, one of the the most shocking things is driving through the city. A taxi driver pointed out um, a building off to the side and said, actually, this is an individual's home. Hmm. And actually, Mumbai is, is... home to the world's most expensive single person house. So it's an 11, excuse me, 12 story apartment worth a billion dollars. It's India's richest man's home. Um, within a mile drive of that, that location, you come across some of the, the largest slums in the world. So the contrast couldn't be more 
clear in, in places like Mumbai. In Delhi, it's, it's the same, but the real issue is more an urban and rural uh, division between the country, where the urban areas do see high levels of growth. Um, people there are getting access to education, to healthcare, where in the rural areas, people still don't necessarily have access to indoor plumbing, for example, or clean uh, water. Uh, so these issues are very much in terms of within the cities themselves and then between the urban and rural areas. We've spoken before about opportunities in China, especially opportunities coming from its growing middle class. Where is India in terms of its development? Well, so uh, having gone through a long period of industrial development, India is thinking like most developing nations of how to get ahead of where it is right now. Uh, what they've seen is that industrial development always has kind of the secondary unfortunate effect of, of leading to environmental damaging activity. So one of the things that we were doing there is brainstorming with the Indian government and Indian private sector about ways that Canada could come in, uh, introduce some of its clean technology, for example, um, service side, and then um, actually providing tech around specific issue areas and how we could find synergy between what Canada has to offer and what India is demanding in terms of uh, increasing its uh, um, quality of life for Indian people. Do you see a lot of governments at varying levels taking ownership of that file and really driving forward maybe environmentally conscious initiatives? Absolutely. So there's a couple things there. Uh, at the central government level, the Modi administration has put forward some what they call missions around some certain key areas. One being, for example, uh, the Clean the Ganges River Initiative. So there's a focus there on cleaning up the Ganges, which is the major river in India, focused on water treatment, wastewater management. So there's huge amounts of opportunity for Canadian firms that work in the, the water space to move into that issue area. On the other side, they have a thing called the Smart Cities Mission, where across the country, states were asked to submit proposals around environmental cleanup and things like wastewater management, energy efficiency, um, transport around uh, electronic vehicles, for example. And the government selected 100 of those cities to de designate as specifically smart cities. Mm. So each state has a couple. Um, that's a centrally government kind of led initiative, but the municipal and the city governments are actually the ones that are responsible for implementing that. So a lot of stuff is happening at the, at the state level, but all the way down to the city level. And people really are thinking about how they can increase the quality of life for Indians. Do you have to be a large Canadian company to take advantage of some of these opportunities or can small players gain access? I think... Uh, in, in general, the opportunities are easier for, for large firms, but that's around more traditional industries like, for example, infrastructure development and investment. Uh, small and medium-sized firms, I think they do have a lot of opportunity around this clean tech area that we were talking about, uh, specifically uh, things around software or products or services that fit a niche, right? Um, Ultimately, any Canadian firm that goes into India will have to have uh, an Indian counterpart. Just the simple reality of, of moving into a very complex market where relationships are really important, where understanding local dynamics are still really important. To be a Canadian firm moving into that space, you have to have that local knowledge. Mm -hmm. So small and medium size or large Canadian firms, they're all going to face similar challenges going forward. On that point, for ease of doing business more generally... How does India compare perhaps in the Asia-Pacific region? I'd say India is still a little bit behind some of the other Asian states in terms of its efficiency. Uh, and a lot of that has to do with simply the size and the complexity of the country. A lot of it has to do with the fact that India is a democracy. And while democracy is uh, have a lot of ben benefits across a, a range of different indicators, 
They're less effective in organizing state um, support for certain initiatives. Mm. So one of the advantages of, of China is that it has, or Japan or Singapore, they have a, a very clear industrial policy that's put forward by central governments uh, where they can provide funding behind it and where it fits into a broader kind of state strategic uh, initiative. India doesn't have that. It's driven by market forces. It's driven by individual interests, which means that it's a, it's a very exciting place but it's a little bit less predictable than some of the other Asian states. Mm. Tell me a little bit about India's economic position, a fast-growing economy. I think many listeners would be familiar with their demonetization strategy sure. that yeah. had impacts throughout the population and around the world. Mm -hmm. Tell me where the country finds itself today. Well, India is one of the fastest growing nations in the Asia Pacific, uh, looked at in terms of purchase power parity. It's either the third or the fourth largest economy, depending on, on how you look at it. So it's about the same size in, in terms of PPP uh, around Japan. Uh, huge growing middle class. And interestingly, I think that the demographics in the country point to a long-term trajectory forwards, towards growth. Mm -hmm. So by 2025 and 2030, uh, something like 20 to 25% of the population will be working age. Uh, so whereas other Asian states are seeing that demogra uh, demographic pressure coming to bear, places like South Korea or Japan or China, where the population is getting older, and in some cases they worry it's going to get older before it gets richer. Right. India doesn't see those same um, headwinds as it, it's moving forward. Everything is, mm -hmm. is tacking kind of in the right direction. And tell me too a little bit about the political landscape, India heading into elections that right. are going to take weeks and weeks as we were talking about before we hit the air. What's the climate like? Well, so a lot of the people that we spoke to uh, were very supportive of, of Modi and the Modi administration. There's a general sense that uh, he'll win again, his party will win, uh, and that he'll be prime minister moving forward. A lot of that points to the fact that there isn't a really good um, alternative to Mo Mo Modi moving forward. So uh, his support basically comes from the fact that he's doing a good enough job that nobody has been able to stand up a really sustained opposition to his policies. Mm. Now, of course, we were focused on the business community and, and government officials who naturally look at the, the Modi administration and think that he's, he's doing a lot of the right things. But at the same time, from the normal people that we spoke to on the street, there seemed to be widespread um, kind of public popular support behind the prime minister right now. And I imagine having some political continuity would perhaps be favorable given some of the initiatives that you talked sure. about, continuing those with some sense of certainty. I think absolutely. Uh, so I think the next couple of months will be kind of instrumental in India's near term. If Modi is elected again, we can see around June. It'll take between April and June to actually sort out the state level uh, elections as well right. as the central uh, government elections. We will see, I think, a degree of stability in the political process that serves India quite well. I have to ask you about security implications. Mm. What are some of the impacts that that has on the corporate community or some of the concerns maybe you've heard from private sector? Well, so there was still quite a bit of attention uh, among the people that I spoke to about recent developments between India and Pakistan, starting with the attack in Kashmir that led to a, a large number of Indian soldiers being killed. And then, of course, the Modi government's response and the Pakistani um, counter response. Uh, when I was there, Pakistan had actually closed its airspace. So flying back took a little bit longer because we couldn't pass directly over India. And that's just kind of an indication. You know, as you think about closing airspace as it's related to things like commerce or the movement of people or just general tensions, when you, when you have a neighbor that feels like they need to securitize their airspace for the sake of providing some um, buffer between you know, them and, and your own self, mm -hmm. I mean, that just points to, to tensions and the effect that they have. So, you know, India continues to push forward. Uh, there's a degree to which 
the issue in Pakistan and India-China relations are conflated. Many Indians feel that China is a supporter of Pakistan to the detriment of India's overall national security. Mm. So when I was there, I heard a lot of concern about China as being a strategic competitor and at the same time being an economic competitor. Um, there's an initiative called Made in India, for example, that's looking to uh, lessen Indian dependence on Chinese exports into, uh, into India. That's really interesting. Yeah. How would you characterize the Canada-India relationship at this point in time? Well, so there's a huge desire on the India side for closer relations. We conducted a poll about uh, two months ago where we saw 70% of Indians pointed to the fact that they wanted a free trade agreement with Canada. Mm. There's a huge amount of desire for Canadian investment and um, opportunities for engagement with Canadian high-tech firms. So that's definitely there. I think um, from the Canadian side, there's a sense, excuse me, from the India side, there's a sense that Canada has a huge amount of value add in areas like we've been talking about, mm -hmm. that they bring high technology solutions to problems around the environment, but also that they're a reliable partner to the extent that um, the Canadian firms that are active in India do a very good job. They're very high quality in terms of their, their services, and their tech is something that the Indians look to, uh, to leverage moving forward. We've talked about clean tech a little bit and other opportunities around water management, waste management. Are there some other broad sectors where you see or have identified some key opportunities? Sure. So uh, right now, the, the kind of the composition of the trade relations is around India uh, sending textiles back to Canada mm -hmm. and Canada actually sending um, coal. And strangely, diamonds is one of our largest exports mm. to India. Um, there's a lot of opportunity around the timber section, uh, timber sector, of course. Um, sending wood for uh, uh, and lumber for construction is something that I think has a huge uh, level of potential for, for Canada. Uh, and something that there's a growing appetite for in India as middle class people look for other alternative building materials to build their homes. What do you think has maybe gotten in the way of this relationship developing further no. than it has to date? I think first and foremost is geography, right? Mm -hmm. India is very far away. And as Canada looks to the Asia Pacific, you don't naturally think of India as a state within that broader construct that has the same potential uh, as China, for example. Um, it's more difficult to understand uh, because, as, as we talked about before, it's such a large country and it's so regional specific. So if you, if you don't have an on-the-ground presence in India, it's actually very difficult to understand opportunities, challenges, to identify the right partners, to even understand the, the domestic political environment. And you have to have all those things lined up in order to have a successful strategy moving forward. So I think just the pure complexity of it, um, the, the idea that it's very far away, and other alternatives in the Asia region that seem to be maybe a little bit easier for firms to enter into. Does India consider itself very much as a key player in the Asia-Pacific yes, region? Yes, absolutely. So the Modi uh, administration has a Act East foreign policy, mm. where the idea is to look into Southeast Asia as an area where Indian influence needs to expand. So they've invested in their naval buildups, for example. They've got very robust Navy partnerships with uh, Japan. They're looking uh, for relations in Southeast Asia that they can build on. All with the idea that India needs to have greater control over its kind of near abroad, but at the same time understanding that in order to balance Chinese influence, both in South Asia and Southeast Asia, it has to have a sustained presence in the region. It has to have good partners and it has to look for 
other states that share its values and share its strategic concerns. And Canada is absolutely a potential partner for India in that respect, just as much as Japan is, just as much as the United States is. It's seen as an honest broker. It's seen as somebody that Canada could, India could work with very closely. Mm. And those are things that I think Canada should consider as it moves forward with its relations with India. Jeff, as always, a pleasure having you on. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. That's Jeff Reeves, Vice President of Research at the Asia Pacific Foundation of Canada. That's it for our show. Thanks for listening to BIV today. You can get notified of new episodes and listen to our archive of content by subscribing to us on iTunes or on Stitcher. You can also visit BIV.com slash audio. For more business news, if you want to read it, watch it, or listen to it, you can head on over to BIV.com. I'm Haley Wooden. Thanks again for listening.